0: This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy. And all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. It's too much. Yes, fight for every legal vote. Go through your due process. We encourage you, use your First Amendment. That's fine. Death threats, physical threats, intimidation. It's too much. It's not right. They've lost the moral high ground to claim that it is. I don't have all the best words to do this because I'm angry. The, and the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back today is, again, this 20-year-old contractor for a voting system company just trying to do his job. Just there—in fact, I talked to Dominion today and I said he's one of the better ones they got. His family's getting harassed now. There's a noose out there with his name on it. It's not right. I've got police protection outside my house. Fine, you know, I took a higher, higher profile job, I get it. Secretary ran for office, his wife knew that too. This kid took a job, he just took a job and it's just wrong. I can't begin to explain the level of anger I have right now over this. And every American, every Georgian, Republican and Democrat alike should have that same level of anger. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. And you have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. I, I, it's not right. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields.
1: If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change
0: within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness, all must be left to a
1: bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sex. Tony Wilson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to an archive special of the Speakola podcast. This is the first time I've done this, put up an old episode for people to listen to and hopefully enjoy again. Gabriel Sterling, a Republican electoral official who worked in the office of the Secretary of State of the state of Georgia. And Gabrielle Sterling delivered a famous speech, a viral speech, about Trump not conceding the 2020 election and the risks that posed and indeed this week Gabriel Sterling has been summoned to the January 6th committee meeting on Capitol Hill. He was a witness at that hearing and I thought because he's in the news, because it's a significant speech and because it's a great episode, I'd put it up again. Speakola is now completely listener supported. No ads on the website, the podcast or the newsletter. So if you want me to keep doing it, Some help would be appreciated. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash speakola or make a donation, speakola.com forward slash donate. Thanks. Speakola. Well, what a day on the Speak Ola podcast. We've had, I think, one viral speech featured before, the one by Stan Grant given at the Ethics Centre in 2015, but we haven't had quite a viral speech like this one. Our special guest today, Gabrielle Sterling, whose speech went around the world on the 1st of December last year. He's been on Meet the Press. He's been on 60 Minutes. He's been on Katie Couric. It must be a big thrill for you, Gabrielle, to be on uh, the Speak Ola podcast. Well, absolutely. Anybody who focuses on the art, science, technique of
0: speaking in a way to persuade people, that's actually pretty exciting, because you know, that's an important thing that human beings have to do to deal with one another.
1: Well, what a speech it was. I mean, it's, it's probably a life-changing speech for you. Um, can you take us back a little bit, even just to the, the scene, that there's this big staircase and the Georgia legislature? What were you thinking as you were walking down those stairs? Well,
0: actually I walked over our office is on the same floor and the stairs provide sort of the backdrop and it's all, it's very marbly and granite in there. So it actually makes for a very good sound because it was done during time. The legislature was not in session. And obviously we had a gigantic media presence. It was a little smaller that day because we were so deep into the process of, you know, counting votes and doing all those things. And when I went in the, the, I'm sure many who've seen the speech, it was really funny. I talked to my mom about it immediately. She said a great speech. I talked to her about it two or three days later and she said, wow, you were, you were mad. I'm like, when could you tell I was mad? She goes, when you walked up and you ripped the mask off your face and threw it under the podium. She's like, mama knows those things. I'm like, well, that's probably true. So, But I had gotten a phone call about an hour and a half to two hours beforehand from a woman I've been working with from our voting system contractor, Dominion Voting Systems. And she told me about the young man who had received a threat via Twitter, who's a video from a couple of these QAnon crazies gone viral, accusing him of, of messing with the election. And at that point, you know, I'd gotten threats. My boss, Secretary Rapsburg, gotten threats. And it's weird. I guess the human brain, you sort of get numb to it. And then when I went on Twitter and I saw the image of what had been said about this young man, it was um, it was his name, you've committed treason. May God have mercy on your soul. And there was a gif of a noose that was like lightly twisting. Hmm. And for whatever reason that reached into my gut and twisted it around. And I got without putting, this is one of those things, an American slang term pissed, um, which is just very, very angry. Essentially. Um, I know in certain English dialects, it means you're drunk. That's not, I was not drunk. (laughs) I was just very (laughs) angry. Um, but I had an hour and a half to stew on it, which was a good impact because the press conference had already been scheduled. It was already set for 3.30 that day. So I knew I was going to be talking anyway. And there's an irony to how my process is, is my boss, a woman who I've worked with off and on for years, knows me pretty well. If I overprepare, I have problems. I start trying to think back and going, but what, what did I get to everything I'm supposed to get to? And like the very first press conference, the big national one, like the day after the election, I walked past the Bay of Cameras and there had to be what felt like a 100, but it was probably like 50 or 60 cameras and, you know, probably 100 reporters. I'm like, wow, I can't believe Brad's going to have to deal with that. And I walk into the office and my boss, Jordan Fuse, she goes, guess what, you get to do the press conference. <laughs> so I had five minutes to prepare for that and that was great. I mean, so I walked up to the podium and I, I basically said, this is going to be a two-parter. I mean, I, cause I still had to do the general actual stuff. The press was there to hear, which is about, this is what counties are out. This is the style of votes that are out and, and the, and the dry stuff that I've been giving. And I just rift. I found, found out about the, the threat that had been made to Chris Krebs, who I knew from the, from CISA, which is a Homeland security sort of the internet security. Done by a guy named Joe DiGenova, who I had always liked as a commentator. He's a former U.S. attorney, and he'd gone in there and said, "Yeah, this guy should get shot for treason." I'm like, "This mm. is this rhetoric is out of control. This is insane." So it was a good lead-in to have a something that everybody would know nationally, and then bring it back home to this young man, because, and like I said, at the time I said he just took a job. This rhetoric has got so out of hand that this young man who just took a job, and I'm sure he was excited to get it. And now he's getting death threats and Mm -hmm. he being internet famous for, for just doing his job. And that's politics is a rough and tumble thing. I get that. And, you know, we, we signed up for this young man did not, and that's not fair. And it was pervading things. So I had that to go. And it was really funny. The only thing that Jordan specifically told me to do is like, just use the word complicit somewhere. It's like, got it. (laughs) (laughs) um, And I didn't know, I was even going to call the president so specifically and directly as I did. But I went up there. It felt like the right thing to do. And the same thing with our two existing senators who and I know many people uh, – you're right. It became it was a viral video. became internationally out there, which is just a weird thing to think. I, it was just the right thing to do. And I still supported these two people for their Senate seats, but they were acting in a way that I felt was inappropriate. And honestly, I've watched the speech. I don't watch it like every day or anything, but I've watched it a couple of times. And my favorite line was a completely off the cuff line, which was the, if you're going to ask for a position of leadership, show some. Yeah. And watching it after the fact, if you ever give a speech that's ad lib like that, you walk away and you have not a friggin' clue what you said. <laughs> there is no way you could go back and give it again. And you have it's, it kind of like clears the decks. So yeah, but so I, I did that, and it was a the ironic thing about the day was my fiance had earlier in the day called me and she had gotten a job, so we we're very excited. She's been looking for a job for a while, and I said, "Baby, today's all about you." <laughs> so, so I go and give the speech, but then I turn off my phone and go home. I take her to dinner. My phone is still off. I do this. I mean, so I wasn't really paying attention. And I figured we'd get some play here. I did not ever envision what happened with it, as you pointed out.
1: Well, the confidence with which you strode up, I have to say that you had me in that speech. Just at the the way that you hammered out an almost metronomic, this all has gone too far, all of it. And the the ability to slow down there and really drill it I mean, often when you're ad-libbing, you want to go faster and to and to gallop, I guess, and and yet you had the kind of poise to slow it down and hit that note. And I think as soon as you did, that speech comes alive because it feels like you've got confidence, and and also people don't speak like that. I mean, this was a, a direct address uh, with emotion, passion, anger, and it was like, oh, we're awake. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thanks. I mean, one of the things I did learn as a skill is one of the things you have to do in any speech is use the timing of your voice and silence is a incredibly strong tool. It lets things sink in. It it, it gives the audience pause to take notice because you're right. Oftentimes people get into that staccato of and this and this and this and this and this and it sounds like a laundry list of complaining versus I am here for a specific purpose and you need to listen. And it's very, it's a, it's, I don't know if it's a learned skill or, you know, my, my father is a, is a very good public speaker and I learned some stuff from him. I've been in and around politics. I mean, the first time I talked to the press in a quote unquote official capacity, I was 17 years old. So I am, I had just turned 50 at that point. I turned 50 in November. And so, I mean, I've been around in and around this for 33 years, and it's not just politics, it's business. You know, you, you go get sales pitches, you do those kind of things, and the confidence is there. I guess I'm a, of an age where I've, I've been around it a lot, and I guess it kind of comes through. And even during my press conferences, I knew what I was talking about, and if I didn't, I didn't have any issue with saying, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. You know, the, the ability to say you don't know something it's very freeing.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you don't have to know everything. People expect you to know everything, but you don't have to because it's impossible to know everything. And anybody who walks into a room and says, I'm the smartest person. I know everything. I know instantly not to trust what they're telling me <laughs> because it's impossible. And the emotion of the speech was, I've heard it called controlled rage. Um, and at that point it probably was, I, I got angrier in mid speech than I was beforehand because at that point I was letting it go. And at one point you kind of hear me go, I don't have all the best words because I I was, I was so ahead in my head of how angry I was. I I basically wanted to take a moment to pause about that and then say, it's because this is so emotional and so, and such a big thing I'm not going to necessarily speak in the most eloquent way. Although people have told me it was incredibly eloquent. So I will, I will take their, (laughs) this sounds having this conversation about, they, the way I gave a speech is, is I will admit awkward because
1: <laughs> well as it's you just, say it's mm-hmm. a, it was it was an ad-libbed artwork and so I guess uh, did you did you stand in the mirror in that angry hour and a half upstairs in your office uh, did you stand in the mirror and say I'm going to have a bit of a go at this as to what I'm going to say because this is slightly you know off script for what I would normally deliver at a, at a press conference I knew I was going to have as you say
0: it a bit of a go I didn't know where I was going to take it. I didn't realize until I got in the flow of it that I was going to flat out call out the president of the United States. That was not in my head to start. I was, but when I was talking, I said, there's no one else to do this with. He is the font of this. You, you can't shoot around it. And I, at one point, I tried to say in the speech, I said, look, whoever's telling you this thing was stolen, they're not right. And just stop listening to them. Maybe you've been misled. I was trying to give... Here's your out. I'm giving you an out to say people were giving you bad advice. Because I said, you're not aware of what's going on on the ground here, Mr. President. And and it was a president of my own party. And that would make... I think that made it a little more newsworthy, I guess. And from what I've heard from other people, and this is... There was there was and part of the reason it went viral was there was an appetite in the United States and around the world for a person to do that. Now, should it be a bureaucrat with the title voting system implementation manager? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> it ought to be somebody like a <laughs> senator or somebody who asked for that gig. But it was the the timing and the emotion of the moment more than anything. And I you're you're right. It's a life changing. When I when I die that's going to be in the obituary somewhere. That's <laughs> set. I mean, that's, I don't know how you go past that, essentially. You'll, you, you know, it's it was weird. And again, because my title is voting system implementation manager. I am a functionary inside of an office. And it was just, I, I happened to have a stage at that moment, and it was necessary. And it was funny because, Jordan, my boss, had called the secretary, Secretary Raffensperger, and said, hey, we've we've seen this 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 terrible tweet, this threat out here in this young man. And, you know, we had this stuff earlier. This, this is kind of taking up. Gabriel really wants to say something about it. And he's like, well, absolutely. We should definitely say something about, you know, we shouldn't encourage violence. And she's like, okay. So afterwards, he called up and said, well, I didn't know he was going to do that. <laughs> but he came up the next day in his own talk and said he's, he said, I don't want to say it the way that Gabe did, but I stand 100% behind what he said because it was the right thing to do.
1: Well, of course, Secretary of State Raffensperger becomes an even bigger story on the 2nd of January. But we might get to that at the end of this chat. But staying with you and being the voting system implementation manager, you're also the chief operating officer for the Secretary of State as well. But the, yeah. this particular role in the aftermath of the election, tell, tell us what you were doing. Well, leading up to it, you know, we, what people may not
0: realise is for the previous essentially 18 years, or 20 years, basically, Georgia had been using something, an electronic recording device, a DRE, it's direct recording electronic voting, which basically you do do it on a touchscreen, it goes to the memory card and touch touchscreen, and that's it. There is no ballot. It's just all automatically tallied up into an election management system from those memory cards. So this was the first year we were implementing a new paper ballot system. We hadn't had one in 20 years, and thank God we did. I can't imagine the, the conspiracy theories that have been swirling around if, if it had gone the other way and we couldn't have done the hand retally. So but that was a $140 million project in 159 counties. So I was there as kind of like quarterbacking, making sure everything went well. And like the day before the election, the day of the election, we had sort of a big war room and anything that could go wrong, we were we really were like prepared for. We had... The people f- for the electricity were there, or Georgia Power. We had people for the gas lines, people who ran trains because we've had situations before where a train breaks down on a track and it blocked people from being able to get to their voting precincts. So we had to extend hours. I mean, we had emergency management there. We had the National Guard there. We had the state patrol there. We had, you know, things with the GBI to talk to them and, and our investigators in case anything happened because we were preparing for a big and it was a huge turnout election. It was a it was you know record setting. Overall, and we were still in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody seems to forget <laughs> in retrospect. So we were really focusing on all that. Then comes the day after. And I've been in and around this stuff, like I said, for nearly 30 years, over 30 years. And I was looking at the numbers, looking at the candidates who were out, and I'm like, this is going to be tough. Because I said, I, I pulled everybody together at like 4 o'clock the next day on Wednesday and said, yeah, it looks like Trump's going to lose by about 10,000 votes. I was only off by 2,000. And I said, we're going to have to be prepared to deal with this because it's going to be tight and we're going to have, and like any election, there's going to be things that aren't done properly, but you have to be prepared for it. And we had a ballot, so it would still be getting counted and put into the tally all the way up to Friday. Um, international ballots come in by Friday. You could cure an absentee ballot by Friday. You could verify a provisional ballot by Friday. So we were getting all those in. And then we had, you know, it was a close election at that time. It was over 12,000 was the margin finally. And I was having to go through and explain in bizarre detail the Byzantine processes around elections. Mm. And at the same time, we were starting to have to deal with the misinformation, disinformation. And then I think a week or so after the election, the two senators from our state called for the secretary to resign because we were lacking transparency in a chaotic election. I'm like, we are literally we we sent out something like. By that point, we had sent out 18 press releases, and I was having two-a-day press conferences. I'm like, I don't know how much more transparent we could be unless I walked out here in my boxers. I mean, we Mm -hmm. were being transparent as as all get-out. But politically, the president had gone to them and said, you're going to do this, or I'm going to torpedo your runoff campaigns. Because they were both in runoff campaigns in Georgia at that point, which were the election was set for January 5th. So we were sitting there, and I was having to go through essentially daily and just explain this is where we are in the process. This is what's going on. And it was funny – I don't know if y'all well, – I'm sure you must get the West Wing down there. But there was a uh, – in the final season when Alan Alda was running at Jimmy Smith's for president, and Alan Alda was a unicorn of a Republican from California, which doesn't exist in real life. <laughs> things, um, there was a nuclear accident in the, in, in the TV show at a plant that he had helped get the permits for. And all of his staff said, well, you got to run away from it. He says, no, I'm to do the opposite of that. He went into the press conference there. And basically stood there and answered every single question for six and a half hours. So that very first press conference we did, and this is what I did for all my press conferences essentially except for a couple. I said, I'm going to stand there and take every single question they have. And if you go to the end of my very first press conference, you'll see at the end, I'll say, so I punched you all out. Are we done? Is this everything? I literally said, we're done. So you've got every question you want answered answered because the transparency you give and the full explanation you give helped to give me the confidence to give that speech because I'd already laid a foundation with a lot of the people who were there watching it. So they knew this was different, but I already had credibility because of the way I'd handled everything beforehand. So laying a foundation to build credibility helps give you that confidence to give those kinds of speeches.
1: Did you know your three examples would be, obviously you knew that the 20-year-old innocent who's being um, pilloried on Twitter is going to be your key example, but did you know that you use the um, Secretary of State's wife and and... Um, the threat from the Trump lawyer?
0: From Joe, Joe DeGeneva. Um, I knew I was using the, the Trump lawyer one. In fact, I knew I only found out about that one about five minutes before I went out, maybe 10 minutes. I didn't know I was going to use the secretary and his wife, but I was so emotional. And, and, and frankly, the the threats began the day the senators called for Brad's resignation, the secretary's resignation, and they began with her getting the sexualized threats to her cell phone. And I was still angry about that because this is a man who's been married to this woman for 40 years and she, she's not the secretary. She shouldn't be receiving this kind of stuff at all, let alone sexualized violent threats on her cell phone, on her personal cell phone. That's just, that was beyond the pale for me on top of it. So yeah, I I, I didn't know I was going to use it, but once I started going, I knew I was going to use it. I didn't walk out there saying that, you know, I didn't know. Like I said, I kind of had, when I give talks, I kind of have basic things in my head and I don't even really use notes. Um, in large part, I do something that I consider to be feeding off the audience and I kind of get a feel for where they are. There's always an energy you can get, even though the audience and for me at that point was just the press and a couple of staffers around. This one was easier for me because I didn't have to feed off the audience and I just kind of felt let it flow and it had had a good order to it. Um, I felt like, and when I'm saying this, it's not like my brain is going through and doing checklists. This is basically gut and feel. When you talk for 30 years, you learn a cadence, you learn an organizational way of doing it, and you learn how to open. And this is one of the things I've always tell people when you give any speech. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. <laughs> you need to get it home the same way every time. Otherwise, it will not stick. Really? You know, If you tell them one thing and tell them another, they're, they, they're going to walk away with nothing. So you've really got to keep on that central theme and tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them.
1: Well, you you do exactly that. You start with the this all has to stop. That's what you're telling us. Then you give Mm -hmm. us the emotive examples. And then you do a really interesting thing. And and you mentioned it um, offhandedly a moment ago. You mentioned that you make the interesting and I think quite courageous decision to address the president as a you So, Mr. President, you have not (laughs) condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. And what really was frustrating in the aftermath of it was
0: not a single one of them themselves came out and said, we condemn this. They sent spokespeople out. All three of them did. And I'm like, in my head, I didn't even talk about this to friends. I'm like, how hard is it to go out as an elected official and say, all violence is wrong, all use of violence in a political sense is wrong, and of course we condemn all that from all sides. They could have said that, and no one could have complained. Mm. I mean, it, it was still, from my point of view, a, a I don't want to call it a weakness necessarily, but this we live in a situation now where giving in on anything is viewed as weakness, and I think that's a terrible way to try to organize people and, and, and encourage people acknowledging the truth and and putting out moral clarity is never going to be weak. There's just, there's not a thing in my head that allows me to accept that as a possibility, but we've gotten so polarized and any chink in the armor is viewed as weakness and to be exploited. So you can't give anything. And I think that's a problem, not just in the United States, but in most of the Western democracies, we still have that issue. It's more pronounced in the United States because we don't have a parliamentary system. We have a first across the line system. So there's one party that will win or another party that will win. And that's it. That's that's it. It's your only two choices. And it it, it drives this polarization and makes discourse much more difficult.
1: Gabriel, you you mentioned you're a Republican. I I presume you voted Republican in this election. Yep. And was there a sense even on the night with the, the early morning or late night speech from President Trump, were you worried at that point? Did you feel, hang on, you know, something could be up here? It hadn't hit me yet. When he gave that late night thing, I was like, oh,
0: that's just Trump being Trump. I just, it didn't register for me as anything beyond the pale. Um, hearing some of the things from behind the scenes now and some of the new publications that are coming out, it does seem like full-on crazy town in the background. of of him just listening to anybody. We all have friends in our lives who listen to the people who tell them what they want to hear, whether it's real or not. That's, that's not a abnormal thing. And it seemed in this particular case, the president keyed in on people telling him what he wanted to hear. And the other scary part about this that I've seen learned after the fact is there was sort of a setup to claim victory in a stolen election in a real way, not just a rhetorical way, which I've been hearing the rhetorical thing for a while. And tactically, even then, when I was looking at it, that's really stupid. Tell people not to vote Mm. on absentee ballots in the middle of a pandemic when the majority of your voters are older. Uh, It didn't make any sense tactically to go that route unless you were laying a foundation for what ended up happening, which is the claim of of the stolen election, of which we still see no
1: real evidence. Yeah. And, and so was it a couple of days later you saw some disturbing signs? When, when, when did the threat start hitting the Georgia oh, offices? The threat started literally the day the senators called for the resignation.
0: And we were, from our point of view, just doing our jobs. We were counting the votes. We were explaining. And this is one of the frustrating things that's happened from the, from the people who are believe in the steal. They told me and they said on Twitter, they talk, even some talked to me, says, well, you said it was a perfect election. I was like, we absolutely 100% Foursquare never said it was a perfect election. We always said there were illegal votes. There were not enough illegal votes that we've seen so far to change the outcome. There were illegal votes because you have thousands of human beings who are involved in this. And most of the things that are illegal votes are mistakes, human error. When you have thousands of people executing an election, every election has things like that that happen. It is not a conspiracy. It is human beings being human beings. And I've, I've said this to many people, and this one of my lines, is don't attribute to nefariousness what can be more accurately attributed to damasery." I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the human condition of doing something stupid is much
1: more likely than doing something evil. Words, we're not really built that way. And then, of course, there's the, the space that I guess has a prescience to it and a, and a chilling prescience to it as well when you you roll into the rule of threes and the someone's going to get hurt, someone's going to get shot, someone's going to get killed and it's not right, it's not right. Um, for mine, it's the, the climax of the speech and, and you know really quite emotional and quite moving moment in the speech um, and I guess you couldn't be more gutted to have been proven right. It sucks. It sucks to have been
0: proven right. And was it that exactly what I was thinking? No, but was it an, a, a direct line drawn out of that rhetoric? Absolutely. And there's no question about that. And anybody who says otherwise is not living in reality. Um, and it was terrifying and terrible. I worked on Capitol Hill. And that place, I, I don't want to use the term sacred, but it is the cornerstone of our republic. I mean, that's where the first section of our constitution is about the legislative branch. And there's a reason for that because it's the most important branch. It is the parts that's representative of the people and representative of the States. And when it was being breached, I was, I was probably more irate that day than I was when I gave that talk. Cause it was internal to me. I would worked in those halls. I knew where those buildings were. I knew where the subway was. I knew the corridors they were in. Um, and I had friends there in DC. So one of our staffers was up there with the National Guard and I was worried about him. Fortunately, he was stationed further away from all the happy craft that was going on that day, but it's it's incredible that in 2021 that could have happened. It's still incredible to me and I still at a level of I'm still at a level of disbelief about it. And of all the politics that have gotten around it, too, um, unfortunately. And one of the problems we have, and I think part of it's driven by the speed that we've all kind of gotten used to getting information, sharing information, the social media, and those kind of things, is our leaders in most Western democracies used to think about the long term. Our business leaders included in that, not just political. Now everybody wants to win the news cycle, everybody wants to win the week, everybody wants to win the quarter, and they're doing everything in a very short sighted way. And this is the kind of things that happens. And the other thing we have is this consistent escalation. And I have a personal belief that in the United States law, this started in 1986 with the nomination of Judge Robert Bork and the demonization of him to do anything they could to kill him getting on the court. And that kind of said, okay, so next time the rules have been set a little bit differently. So the other side will then escalate. And then the next time the rules are set a little bit different, then the other side will escalate. And it keeps on going and going. And now we're not at a point where any good speech or any good discourse can happen in any real way. Like literally, day before yesterday, the Speaker of the House of the United States House, Nancy Pelosi, called the Minority Leader, the leader of the of the opposing party in in, in her body, a moron on national television. That does not imbue the ability to you know work across the aisle and get things done for the American
1: people. Hmm. And and in terms of the the heat of the rhetoric, how did that reflect back on you afterwards? Was there were there attacks either from Republican senators or lawmakers against you personally for speaking out? Or were you bombarded on Twitter? And did, did the death threats and these sorts of things escalate for you?
0: Oh, they escalated for a little while, sure. But the, the, it was, you know, sticks and stones kind of thing. I mean, I did have to have a – I had a police car stationed in front of my house. Um, I, I, got, I would get emails, occasional text messages. I had a weird FedEx package sent to my house. The police had to come get it. It was just, it was an odd time. And, you know, in a normal human way, I try to rationalize it and say, well, nothing really happened. But I know internally I was probably a little more stressed out about it than I would ever, frankly, acknowledge in the real time of it. Because one of the things I did say to myself is I'm not going to let these people change how I live my life. So I was going to do things the way I was always going to do it. I would still go to my normal pub that I go to. Um, Thomas O'Reilly's in Sandy Springs. Mm -hmm. Um, I would still go to my my grocery stores and I had been an elected official on the city level in my city. So a lot of people knew who I was before all this. And I'll say the good part about, for the most part, I got a lot of personal, that was a great, you're doing a great job. Thank you for saying what you said. But there was people who I've known for years and I went to a restaurant in my area not long after it. And I was sitting at the bar and a person I know from Republican politics when sat across the bar, And I saw her taking a picture. I'm like, well, this should be fun. And then on Facebook, she goes, what do you do when you're sitting across the evil man who stole the election from the president? Mm. I mean, this is a person who I've known for years. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> I mean, it's not like she couldn't just come talk to me about something. Uh, it's not like I'm not approachable, for God's sakes. So, and it was interesting too, because there was one other funny thing about this whole thing that I'm getting married in October. We got engaged at Labor Day. And I've been going to church with her now for three years. And I finally had made the decision that I was going to get baptized and join the church. So I got baptized. And then there's a, in Christianity, they basically say that, you know, Satan, evil, or you want to call it, will chase you for 40 days before you get baptized and 40 days after you get baptized. So when we had the January 5th election, I told that story to the whole staff. I said, look, we're outside of the 40 day window now. So we should be off this time. And then our elections director, Tom, Chris Harvey, who was a very strong practicing Catholic, he's a layperson on their like judicial board for the, the Northern parish or whatever they call it diocese. Yeah. And he has, well, unfortunately the governor's health order has extended the timeline. So we now are still in that time. And it, it didn't feel that way on January, on January 5th because we were still having to deal with a lot of the same stuff. And it's rhetoric can be uplifting and rhetoric can be destructive. And I try to find a way to be factual be honest. I've always found if you saw, what outside of, I couldn't be really funny in this particular one. One of the ways that I was getting well-known early on was I was giving a lot of this dry stuff, but I was also able to bring humor to it and interact with the press in a way that was a lot more humanizing, which gave more credibility to what I was saying. I mean, one of the famous things I became what they called the, the football person of the week, because at one point during the counting, there was a gigantic football game coming. And I know your audience can't see this, but you can. There's a big G on the um, wall behind me. That's the University of Georgia. we gonna be playing the University of Florida. And I literally said, look, they asked me what it's going to get done. It's like, I don't know for certain, but I know one thing. I know a lot of people want to get done because we have a very important game coming up this weekend. And that really <laughs> used a lot of tension around that. And there's ways to use your language and ways to do it in ways that can be uplifting and fun. And get people there in a better way than what has become the norm lately which is anger demonization vitriol now those work and they they've they've never not worked with human beings but you have to find a way to lift yourself over and above that but the problem is the we the incentives aren't there if you want to get a lot of views on twitter and youtube things say something outrageous and crazy you want to raise a lot of money attack somebody in a way that's just completely over the top because that's the only way to break through. The incentives are backwards and until the public decides we're no longer going to deal with this level of of crazy town it's going to remain that way and I don't know how you break that no matter how many good speeches anybody can. Do. Well
1: I think one of the reasons the the the, the speech sat well with so many people was the sense that you were maybe speaking out of your team lines. And, and I guess being a Republican, were there were there regrets you had in terms of that you had supported the president? Um, was there a, a sense afterwards that you'd been disloyal to the Republican Party? Um, how has it all sat with you as being a Republican, having, having had this very notorious moment? In real time, though I will admit there's probably some cognitive dissonance. But
0: one of the reasons I am a Republican is I've always believed that there is an overriding truth and there is an overriding guidance for human beings. And your allegiance has to be to that above any party allegiance, you know, God, family, country kind of thing. You always do those things first. And if your party is wrong, you have to be strong enough to call them out and tell them they're wrong. I mean, Think back to when people have seen that before when you go out the lines. Think about Bill Clinton with his sister soldier moment. That was a calculated, intentional thing where he was calling out his own team to show his independence, and it was well-received, even though his was calculated. Mine wasn't really calculated. I was just going from my gut. <laughs> so um, and he literally – got to realize, people don't realize this when he called her out. Sister soldier and Jesse Jackson, I believe, were standing there. So they were in the room with him. At least but the president, Trump, was not in the room with me.
1: That would have been intimidating. (laughs)
0: Just looking at the camera and saying that's not nearly as intimidating, it's still a scary thing to call out the most powerful man in in your country or on the planet, depending on your point of view. Um, And he ended up essentially not responding to me directly. He did retweet the thing and say something. But then the next day, he did a 26-minute video, basically recounting every other thing I – every other – disinformation, misinformation, fake news thing that I'd been knocking down for weeks beforehand and just double down on it. Yeah. And there's something about a rhetoric of that. If you continue to double down on it, it creates doubt in people's minds. And for the people who want to believe you, and that's one of the issues we have now, again, with social media and, and, the, and the diffusion of media now with all the different TV channels and internet blogs, and whatever, people can self-select to only have the things that make them feel good and that they agree with. And there's a human thing that I want to be around like-minded people who don't make me feel bad for the way I feel. And one of the problems we have on the left and the right, and the people, and I've got lots of family on both, what people have not understood, and this may be, I don't know how this is worldwide or not, but there's sort of always the elite intelligentsia, and then there's sort of like the regular everyday folks, and New York and Los Angeles and Washington and the coasts, They've essentially talked down to uh, regular Americans for decades, and Donald Trump, in some part, is a reaction to that. And I remember talking to one of my relatives, and they were basically saying, look, he's the only guy who's fought for us in decades. I was like, no, Ronald Reagan fought for you, Paul Ryan fought for you, John Boehner fought for you, Mitch McConnell's fought for you, your congressman's fought for you. What they didn't do was they weren't pugnacious and hit people in the mouth every time said, you like the way he's fighting because it makes you feel emboldened and like, yeah, somebody's really owning the libs, you know, and that's not it's not healthy long-term. And they, they, they never admit it, but that's what it really is. They like the pugnacity of it. They like the hit him in the mouth even when you don't have to. And I think there's something that needs to be said for the fact that kindness and politeness should never be mistaken for weakness any more than being bellicose and loud, we were mistaken for strength. In fact,
1: usually the inverse is true. Well, speaking about another speech, which was um, Joe Biden's inauguration speech, which which really focused almost the anti-Trump type speech, where he he said, I'm going to put three quarters of this speech into the peacemaking, and we need to stop yelling at each other. And kind of the thing that you're talking about there became the focus of that speech. How do you feel about the election of Biden. I mean you vote for Trump, he's no longer president, you go through this ordeal of being in charge of the or, or one of the leading figures in the post George account. Um, how do you how did you feel with Biden being elected? Do you feel like there's been a sense of relief in America? I mean from from Australia it feels that there's a sense of relief, I think, because we were exhausted think- by by what was going on.
0: Yeah, I think there was a sense of exhaustion in some parts. The problem you have is there's a sense of relief that might be coming across the media-wise. And I think even some Republicans were like, okay, we'll move on past this. There's also now, because of the way we are, there is a sense of terror among tens of millions of Americans watching the policies and then being told by people they believe what some of these things are. And the rhetoric remains high, and it's still – We're still in a very hot place. And by that, I mean, it's not calming down really. It's calming down slightly. And the bigger problem we have is there are those who are still stirring the this election was stolen, which then makes everything the other person does illegitimate. Now, the problem we have, and I pointed this out before, this has been a decades building thing. This isn't just Donald Trump. In 2000, we had the selected, not elected, not my president bumper stickers, all those things around George W. Bush. You had, you know, in 2008, things around Barack Obama, well, he's not really an American citizen. You know, 15 it's it's interesting. I I saw a stat yesterday, something like 16 percent of Americans believe that Barack Obama was is a Muslim not born in the United States. And there's something like nearly 50 percent of Democrats believe that. The 2016 election, Russians hacked voting machines and stole the election from Donald Trump. I mean, so this is all building on each other. And as much as the president might try to do some of the stuff, he's even building on himself by attacking my state. Again, calling our elections laws Jim Crow 2.0. And, you know, the other side bought the domain name Jim Crow 2.0 like a month before any law was passed because they knew they knew the rhetorical path they were going to go and this weaponizing of election administration undermines both sides faith on subsequent elections of the outcomes And if you start getting more and more erosion of faith in the outcomes of elections it's a dangerous thing and one of the things a friend of mine says who's a little left on the scale is like the reason we have ballots is so we can avoid bullets but if both sides start discounting the fact that the ballots actually happen and that they're real there's a logical extent that comes out of that which is not healthy i mean in georgia the woman who lost the governorship in 2018 still has yet to concede. And she lost by nearly five times as many votes as president Trump did. Mm. President Trump had more legitimacy in saying the election was stolen than she did, but she still hasn't done it. And she still has this, they're suppressing her votes, they're suppressing her votes, they're suppressing our votes. Now, tactically, that is a better thing to do than it's a stolen election, it's a stolen election, it's a stolen election. When you tell people it's a stolen election and their votes didn't count, what's the human reaction? Well, I'm just not going to vote. When you tell people, especially Americans. And we're a stubborn lot. We're very similar to Australians. I mean, I mean, both of our nations were started in some parts, at least my state was started as a penal colony for debtors. I think it's very similar for Australia. Yeah. So we're all to start. If you tell us they're trying to take something away from you, you're basically go the hell they are. I'm going to go do more of that. So yeah. it's probably a better thing for their rhetoric than, than our rhetoric right now, which is not again, not a healthy thing. And it's that short term thinking. I can raise money on this. Now I can stay, keep, keep people angry. But the long term is you can't keep this level of anger up this long. It's somebody used a great line. It was actually Secretary Raffensperger was saying, listen, you can't wean people on a pickle. It's just not a, a pleasant way to, to live. And it can't it can't continue forever. So I don't know what breaks it and I don't know what stops the escalation, but it takes grown ups in a room basically saying this. For lack of a better word, this has all got to stop and. I don't know what a better way to say that.
1: Well, you were that grown-up, uh, Gabrielle, that day. Did it have an impact on the runoff elections? Do you think your speech directly contributed to the poor showing from, from Leifler and Purdue? No.
0: I think 100% of, the, of that was the President of the United States saying your election was stolen. If you look at these specific counties and congressional districts that had the biggest drop-off in Republican votes... They were represented by Marjorie Taylor Greene and Doug Collins, two of the early on biggest Stop the Steal proponents. So that's where a lot of that came from. I mean, it's, 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 it's simple math. If you tell people their votes aren't going to count, they don't show up. And we had nearly 300,000 fewer Republicans show up and we lost the races by 55,000 and I want to say 40,000. That's it right there. And part of the problem for the president is he didn't, he underperformed. He got more votes than he did in 2016. Because he had a really strong outperformance in the rural areas. Where he got beat was in Fulton, in the metro Atlanta area, and Athens Clark, which is where the University of Georgia is. The president got 9,500 fewer votes than Senator Perdue did. He lost by 11,977 votes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Nearly all of his loss could be attributed to that. There were 23,000 people who just skipped the election altogether. I'm not voting for president. They voted, they skipped the election. And a lot of that were Republicans who were tired of Donald Trump and the way he was doing things. And this that's thousands and thousands of votes. And yes, they, they, they made a tactical decision to trade off suburban voters who are always voters. They are just preternaturally, they're going to vote. That's what they do. They take their kids to school. They work their jobs. They go vote for rural and blue collar voters who will vote, but it's a lot more haphazard. You can get them there, and then and President Trump did, but they're trading off consistent voters for inconsistent voters, which is not a good long-term strategy for a party. And
1: in terms of the famous phone call, I mentioned I'd come around to this again. But your boss, um, Secretary of State Raffensperger, of course, was at the center of the hour-long taped phone call. Were you uh, in the room for that? Are you a sort of a bystander to this this now famous phone call on the second of January?
0: this was one of the funnier things that happened. Um, I was talking to my boss, Jordan, and it was a Saturday of memory serves. And she, she goes, oh, I got to go. We're getting on a phone call with the president. I'm like, wait, what, what, what? It? She goes about 90 seconds. I'm like, what do you? And then she hung up. I'm like, why am I not on that phone call? <laughs> <laughs> so I heard of the next day from the Washington post after the president had, you know, done his tweet claiming, all these things that were not true from the phone call. So it got out there and I listened to it. And it was really funny because I had my computer on my coffee table. I'm literally yelling at the computer going, don't let him get away with saying that. That's not right. I'm, I'm yelling. And then I'm thinking in my head, maybe it's better. I wasn't on that phone call because the president talked for 50 minutes. If I had been on the phone call, it might've been closer to a 30 to 25 thing. Cause I would've been interrupted. Now maybe I'm being all ballsy now because you know, I think when you talk to the president, there's a, there's an intimidation factor and a respect factor, which I would probably, I would probably have tried to do, but I, I probably would have lost my temper at some point, And I would not have been secretary Raffensperger is a, his ability to just sit there and quietly and calmly talk to the president, and explain to him that his, his, his position was just incorrect. Your numbers are incorrect. And that's just, that's just the situation that you're in. And if I had been the president, I probably would have lost my mind <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I'm my way. And, you know, it's really great. There was a, um, Brian, Germany, our general counsel was on that call too. And at one point he says, you're just, mis- you're just, you're just incorrect, Mr. President. And his daughter, I think is six or seven. And she heard that. And she now says to him when, when she disagrees with him, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Daddy. Yo, yo is what she calls him. Mr. Daddy, he's correct in that. <laughs> so he's having to deal with that now, probably until she gets married, I'm assuming. Um, but I'm glad I wasn't on the phone call in retrospect because I probably would have gone a different way. I would not have been able to hold my tongue as well and hold my temper and been as mature as Secretary Raffensberger was in that. And, and that, that showed real leadership to not do those things and to continue to hold your ground.
1: And did you think that the phone call had a real impact? Do you think the events of 6th of January were accelerated by that phone call?
0: I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know for that for certain. Um, here's here's the thing I did I did know because, again, my speech became front and center of the impeachment uh, of Donald Trump because of the things of January 6th. And I was sort of, that was weird, you know, being a Republican and being front and center. Like, literally, my face was an icon on one of the, PowerPoints in the in the um the House members case, and what I didn't know at the time was the original rally had been scheduled for January twenty third, and the president had had it moved to January sixth. I and mean, I thought that was that in and of itself was a, a, a very hard thing to ignore of what was going on with that, and I don't know. I just I don't think it encouraged it. I think it would have happened either way at that point in time. We were so, so far down the path, we had lost both Senate seats in the, in the, in Georgia. And, and I said this on CNN that, night. I said, this is 100% four square on the shoulders of the president of the United States in his actions since the November election. Because what normally happens in an election, when a president loses, his party is ebullient. They're happy. They're, they're good. They're, they're, they're not, they, they've done their work. The other side is angry and wants to lash out and do something to push back on what just happened. So that so you go back to Georgia in 1992, President Bush lost, and we elected the first senator in a while <laughs> from Georgia as a Republican since 1980 as a new senator in 1992 in a runoff election against a relatively popular incumbent Democrat, Wyche Fowler. So Paul Coverdell won that seat because the normal flow of things that would have been what would happen. In this case, that normal flow was interrupted by the president's constant false claims of a stolen election, which then discouraged our voters and had them focusing on the past and not on the future, and put the two senators in the position of saying, "Yes, the election was stolen, but I really need you to come out and vote." It, it, it was a it was a tactically and rhetorically very difficult line to walk, and they weren't you couldn't do it. There was just no way it could be done, and that and that, that caused that loss, and put the Senate into the hands of the
1: Democrats. You say you lay the, the loss in the hands of Donald Trump. Um, how do you feel about him now? I mean, now he's, he's uh, you know, in, the, in the office of the ex-president or whatever he's doing down there at Mar-a-Lago. How do you, how do you feel about him? Do you th- and what do you think about his, about his legacy? Here's the, the problem. If you look at the actual outcomes of the
0: policies in many cases, they were good. Project Warp Speed got us this vaccine faster. We were at the fullest employment we'd ever had. Black and Hispanic unemployment was the lowest it had ever been, and wages were starting to increase. We had good, solid growth going on. We had expanding um, exports. Now, I didn't agree with the tariffs on some of that stuff because that hurt us on some of those things, but the deregulation, a, a lot of those things were positive things for small businesses, and, and a lot of Americans were doing really well. Had it not been for covid I about guarantee President Trump would have been reelected by about two or three points. Um, and it was a close election, even on this one. What people don't get is he had 7 million fewer votes in total. But if 44,000 votes had changed in Wisconsin, Arizona and Georgia, he would have won re-election with the way that the electoral college is built. So it was it was a popular vote landslide. But it was very, very close in the electoral college, which is why there's a lot of frustrations from people that things didn't work out the way that they wanted them to. And I think his demeanor, I think his leadership style and the chaos that surrounds that was not healthy. And But the judges, the tax cuts, uh, the deregulation, the job growth, the wage growth, uh, the, the lower spending on food stamps and, and support, they didn't lower because they were cutting the benefits, they lowered because there were fewer people who needed the benefits because having a job is the most important thing people could do to get their life together. And that was happening. And all the chaos and everything around it, I, again, I look at the Democrats in the media who continually said, this was Russia collusion over and over again. It kept this alive when it was just there. Never, there wasn't any there. There, there was never any there. There, and even the FBI's report came out. And said there was no there. There, but they kept it going. I mean, it's just this constant need to win and own the libs or own the conservatives and those kind of things. It leads to the outcome of a Donald Trump, and and it leads to AOC, who is a you know a two-termer in New York state having this outsized thing because there's a social media thing and the media, I do believe the media has a general little left-leaning bias, but what they're most biased to is interesting stories that drive eyeballs. And th- so that you're rewarded for being out there because then you become interesting. And if you're interesting, people will click on it and people will watch it. So the sober adults in the room, working through things is not exciting. I mean, one of the things I told people before is this focus on the human there's a human nature to rely on the leader. Like even in Obama, I thought there was a weird religious sense to him that he was he was the leader and we're following him and there was a re- weird religious sense to following Donald Trump. What we used to have in the United States was a wildly decentralized system where most of the work was done at your cities and your counties and in your states. But over the years, we've gotten more and more centralized, and all of a sudden, the president became this savior for all things, and a vessel in which to pour all of your frustrations. And it's not a healthy place to be. And I think we need to be more focused on our communities, our local areas. And what I've told people when I, when I was on city council, and I have, if I was king for a day, I would say anybody's elected to a higher office has to have been on a city council because you're forced to get things done. You have to work with your colleagues really closely, and there's a, only a few of you who so are held accountable. And at the end of the day, you still got to go to the grocery store and face those people who voted for you, for your stoplight, for the, the road getting paved, for the wastewater going right, you know, all those things. So you learn an ability to have to be responsible and think things through. And a lot of these people who are in Congress now never got elected to squat beforehand. And they got elected because they said crazy over the top things. So they keep on doing it. And there's never a good way to legislate from that and get to final outcomes that help people.
1: Was there any sense that, that you were a heightened emotional being of the t- sort that you're talking about in this famous speech, that you hit those media buttons that you're describing?
0: Unintentionally. I mean, at the end of the day, I was just angry. I was just angry. And I this was I had an opportunity that most people did because a lot of people were angry. But I had a, spe- I had a specific straw that broke the camel's back. I was in a position to know about this stuff. And I had an ability to, to do it. And I was lucky on that front. And the fact that I had to do it is sad. And I, while I was happy with my performance in the speech, I'm still sad that it was a speech that had to be given. And I worry as we continue to go down this path and the polarization and the Lack of maturity in a lot of these the things that we call we, some of these people that were leaders. It's, it's not going to easily get better. And I don't know how you bring people back to a reality based system. And it's not just the Trump supporters. They're not the only ones who don't believe things that aren't real. It's 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 the people on the left who believe things that aren't real. And when we've all run campaigns that said, hey, if this woman wins, she's going to set you and your family on fire. You know, that says, no, no, if that man wins, He's going to set your family on fire. That's essentially the level of discourse you have. Mm-hmm. So there's if either side winning. He's going to set your family on fire. How do you come to a middle ground to say this? Let's agree on these things. We're trying to get to. You can't. It becomes it becomes impossible. And if you're viewed as doing that, you're then betraying the tribe. If you if you reach out and do that, you're betraying the tribe, and that's and then you get primary. And part of the issue we have is most of these people on the left and the right, are in safe seats. Their only place they're going to get beat oftentimes is in the primary. So in self-preservation mode, they go down this path, whether they were naturally that way or not to begin with.
1: What was the weirdest thing that happened after this speech went massive? Is it it going on something like 60 minutes? What was the strangest or most memorable experience? That was definitely the
0: strangest because remember how I told you before, my boss knows I'm better if I'm not preparing for something? I was told to go down there because Brad, the secretary, was doing the interview, and I was going to have to walk them through the videotape of what happened at State Farm, which is the absentee ballot counting location for Fulton County, where the city of Atlanta is. And it was with Scott Pelley, who was a lot skinnier in real life when you see him. All these TV guys are all skinny, you know, and I'm like, I've been called um, on some of the right-wing blogs, attacking Me Pudgy. And yes, that kind of hurts a little bit but yeah I, I kind of am punchy but i need to i need to work on that but I eat a lot of good food um so we went there and i'm talking to the producer and brad's that getting there you know he's got another staffer there and we're talking and i'm like okay so I'm, where am i to walk scott through this He's like oh you're gonna do this and this and the makeup things over there i'm like well what do you mean well when you're when you're gonna do this you're gonna make, I'm like, you your makeup like for when i talk to the video no when you do your interview I'm like I'm sorry what i did not know I was going to be interviewed when I walked in there <laughs> and you can tell because I was, I've been on television enough to know you don't wear a patterned shirt. I was wearing a patterned shirt. I was wearing a patterned jacket. I mean, I was, I, I looked like my normal outfit because of what I normally wear, but I would have worn a, like, like I'm, I didn't know if we were going to be on video or not. So I'm wearing a, a solid colored shirt because that's what you do when you're on television. I had not a flipping clue I was going to be interviewed on 60 Minutes when I walked in there. So that, that definitely fell into the weirdest one for me. And then the second weirdest one, was I listen to some podcasts, but I'm not like as avid as many people who throw it on their their phone and do walking or exercising and stuff like that. I had never heard of The Daily, <laughs> the New York Times thing. Yeah. When I did The Daily, I discovered that was a thing because all of a sudden my Twitter things blew up. I had people calling me from everywhere. I'm like, I guess this is a thing. I didn't know this was a big deal. And then I was watching, I have I've got cable and you know when you leave it, on pause for a while it starts running ads and stuff. And it showed one of the things you do with Alexa, Alexa play the daily. I'm like, if they're saying this in an ad, then people know what that is. And I did not realize how broad of a reach that was. And that was really, I got choked up in an interview and I got really irritated with myself. Cause I didn't mean to. And, but it was a good moment and it was real. And one of the things that I tell anybody when they're giving a talk is don't, feign how you want to feel because human beings generally have a good BS detector. And if you're feigning it, they'll know and it takes away from everything else you said. So you always have to be real with your emotions. If you're really angry, let let you be really angry, be controlled. If you're really sad, be sad, but don't let it be over the top because people don't know that. But if you're faking any of that, people will absolutely know that. So always be careful with trying to play the audience with that
1: stuff. And without wanting to cheaply put you down that same emotional path, what was the thing that took you up on that on that chat? Um, I kind
0: of remember now. I think it was around the young man being threatened. And I was just – I'd have to go back and listen now because there was a couple of things. I mean, democracy and the republic being in trouble emotionally gets me a lot because I've dedicated 30 years of my life to trying to make things better for people from – my, my little positions I've had in life, you know, I've, I've helped run campaigns. I've been on a city council. I helped create – I made my hometown into a city. I was the, the one of the two co-chairmen for that campaign. We got 94% of the vote to become incorporated. Um, and I, I've dedicated a large part of my life to being a conservative Republican who is solutions-based and reality-based and detail-oriented. And, and then to be put in this position where all of a sudden – I'm viewed as a tool to Democrats or, you know, what I'm saying isn't true when I've tried to do my best to keep truth and honesty and good government at the height of what I try to do in life. It's been, it's been a ride and it's been difficult. And when I saw that the young man had been threatened, that again was the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, all of it was too much and it was unnecessary and, they were human beings, people, the president and the people around him were stoking these fires and stoking these flames. And it was obvious that somebody was going to get hurt out of this. And you can't, if you care about people at all, you can't stand by and say nothing. And there's got to be a level of, of responsibility for anybody in these positions. So yeah, that's upsetting. I've still got family members who, are fully convinced the election was stolen. Hmm. And I was talking to another friend of mine who's an elected official who was, would be very knowledgeable about this. And he was on a, a, a chat about um, fantasy football and people he'd known for a long time since college days were on this chat. And eventually they started talking about the stolen election and kept had to ask him, well, what happened? What happened? What happened? And he finally said this, this, and this, and they came back as well. You know, you hear all these things. I just don't know who to believe. And I talked to him later on, and he didn't say this to the, to the guy. He said, Maybe the guy you've known for 30 years, who's always been honest with you, is a good place to start. And when you were at a point where people question that, and everybody's given the same value of truth on things, it's just difficult. And I it's, I, it's just hard. There's no, everyone like, said, Well, how do you fix this? It takes fixing people's souls to fix it. There's not a news rating thing that's going to say, This is 8.5% true. And people say, Oh, well, I agree with that. What people do is – the interesting thing about misinformation and disinformation, it's eye of the beholder because if I agree with it, well, obviously it's correct. If I disagree with it, well, it's obviously disinformation. You know, So yeah. it's very hard to break people out of those those molds. You have to work at it, and it's hard because most people, you know what they want to do? They want to raise their kids, go to work, you know, have a weekend cookout with their friends, have a beer, go to the lake, you know, visit their mother in the hospital. People want to live their lives. And they don't want to take the time to do this stuff. And the people who go out there and really focus and their energy and their life and their happiness is based on political outcomes—that's wildly unhealthy. And then we've got to get away to get away from that over time. And I'm not—I'm not sure. I'm not smart enough to know how to do it.
1: Unfortunately. Did you meet the twenty-year-old who I think sort of provided the story heart of your speech? I never did. And uh, we—I
0: know we played phone tag at one point. It was the best. I. I got a feeling he didn't want to be part of it. In fact, he was back and people don't know this. He was back at work the, like the next day, which I was like, man, that kid's strong." <laughs> <laughs> so. Cause the other thing about it was it wasn't just him. He had a, he had a very unique last name. I believe he was a first generation American. So they were able to track his family down and start sending them direct messages too. I mean, so it wasn't just him. It was his family that was getting these threats. And that was the other thing that put me over the top. was like, this kid didn't sign up for his family. Definitely didn't sign up for it. And like I said, in the speech, the secretary ran for office. You know, this sucks, but it, unfortunately, it's the world we live in. I put myself in front of the TV cameras. It sucks, but it's the world we live in. This kid didn't do anything other than take a job. And to, to stand up and def- – it's the easiest thing in the world to stand up and defend a person who was just trying to do their job and didn't do anything wrong and didn't ask for this. That was just, that, I It was an easy thing to do, and it was easier to call the president of the United States than I had thought it would be, I suppose, and I, I hadn't really – like I said, it wasn't my intention to quote-unquote call him out, but I think it ended up being a good and necessary thing. And maybe it gave pause to some people for at least a little while before they went back to their, their turrets and, and firing back at one another.
1: Well, Gabriel, it's been a pleasure listening to you. I really agree with a lot of what you said about the the entrenched camps and the the invective and the fact that there's so little aisle crossing going on. And I feel as though, you know, it's also a poison in Australian politics as well. Um, and, you know, I just hope that people like yourself who had that moment of clarity and, and the courage to do it, you know, that more people in politics are able to do that. So thank you and congratulations. Well, thank you, Tony. Thanks for having me. Cola. It's now time for Speech of the Week. I think that had a bit of a Muppets lost in space vibe. The way we do things on the Speak Ola podcast is we talk about the speech and then we play the speech as Speech of the Week. And this week, it is, of course, Gabrielle Sterling's brilliant press conference in the halls of the Georgia State Legislature on the 1st of December 2020.
0: Good afternoon. My name is Gabriel Sterling. I'm the Voting System Implementation Manager for the state of Georgia. And just to give you all a heads up, this is going to be sort of a two-part press conference today. At the beginning of this, I'm going to do my best to keep it together, because it has all gone too far. All of it. Joe Geneva today asked for Chris Krebs, a patriot who ran Sisa, to be shot. A 20-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. My boss, Secretary Raffensberger, his address is out there. They have people doing caravans in front of their house. They've had people come onto their property. Trisha, his wife of 40 years, is getting sexualized threats through her cell phone. It has to stop. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy. And all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. It's too much. Yes, fight for every legal vote. Go through your due process. We encourage you, use your First Amendment. That's fine. Death threats, physical threats, intimidation. It's too much. It's not right. They've lost the moral high ground to claim that it is. I don't have all the best words to do this because I'm angry. And the the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back today is, again, this 20-year-old. Contractor for a voting system company, just trying to do his job. Just there. In fact, I talked to Dominion today and I said he's one of the better ones they got. His family's getting harassed now. There's a noose out there with his name on it. It's, it's not right. I've got police protection outside my house. Fine. You know, I took a higher higher profile job. I get it. Secretary ran for office. His wife knew that too. This kid took a job. He just took a job. And it's just wrong. I can't begin to explain the level of anger I have right now over this. And every American, every Georgian, Republican and Democrat alike should have that same level of anger. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. And you have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. I, I, it's not right. And y'all, I don't have anything scripted. This is, like I said, I'm going to do my best to keep it together. All of this is wrong. The Geneva who, who said for Chris Krebs to get shot is a former U.S. attorney. He knows better. The people around the president know better. Mr. President, as the Secretary said yesterday, people aren't giving you the best advice on what's actually going on, on the ground. It's time to look forward. If you want to run for re-election in four years, fine, do it. But everything we're seeing right now, there's not a path. Be the bigger man here and stop, step in. Tell your supporters, don't be violent. Don't intimidate. All that's wrong. It's un-American.
1: An amazing speech. Gabrielle went on to do the business of Voting Systems Implementation Officer in his scripted part of that press conference. So I won't play that, but the ad lib is outstanding and timeless and so grateful to Gabrielle for coming on the podcast took a few misses before we finally caught up, but it was really worthwhile and you know one of my favorite episodes, thank you Gabrielle. If it was one of your favorites too, you can show your love either a review on iTunes or, or a five star rating or cold hard cash. If you'd like to do a donation, a monthly donation you could do that through patreon.com forward/speakola. Or you could do a straight-off donation, however you like, at speakola.com forward slash donate. Thank you to the handful of people that have donated since last time. It's all helping. I think it is a very modern world thing to do, to consume your favorite media and to give the creators a pat on the back directly. because, Because the pay rates in a fully digitized free content society are not good. Thank you to David Brady for the theme song. Thank you to Michael Fink, who does some graphic design and image work for SpeakOla when I need help. Thank you to greenskinavocados.com.au and thank you to the podcast reader, George Orwell on the cover. podread.org Until next time, I'm currently ringing... The great West Indian cricketer Wes Hall every second night. I reckon I'm going to get him on. He sort of said he would come on, but he's doing a book tour or something. But Wes Hall in the wings. It's going to happen. Until next time. See ya.